Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. We will prevent any power from even aspiring to be a regionally dominant power, to uh, be completely sovereign, that not ha- does not allow U.S. troops to occupy it. <clears throat> Russia and China fit, fill that bill, especially China. And so now Russia and China are targeted. We say that. We, we don't make any bones about it. And so I think we also have to see everything that happened since since the, the, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in that light. That was John Walsh, peace activist and author, and we'll be discussing Russia, NATO, and the U.S. with lots of information you may not have known or may have forgotten. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio for Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. That today we have John Walsh, a distinguished activist and author. Until recently, John was a professor of physiology and neuroscience at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. He has written on issues of peace and health, healthcare for Asia Times, San Francisco Chronicle, East Bay Times, San Jose Mercury News, LA Progressive, Antiwar.com, Counterpunch, and others. He's a founding member of the original Coalition for Palestinian Rights and co-founded People Against Psychosurgery, and he's also a fellow Veterans for Peace No Nukes group member with Harvey and I. So, John, um, welcome to the show on this unusual and uh, chaotic uh, day. Uh, we're recording Great on to be here. We're recording on Sunday. So, um, a- as of right now, we know that Russia has invaded. Uh, Ukraine, and that invasion continues. We also know that they've got their uh, so-called deterrence nuclear weapons on high alert. And so before I turn it over to both you and uh, both you, John and Harvey, I wanted to just read the Veterans for Peace statement because Veterans for Peace has come out and then um, I will take my panic, uh, panic attack someplace else while you guys hash, out, hash this all out. So (laughs) Veterans for Peace condemns the invasion of Ukraine. Our mission remains the same. We are committed to a sustainable and just peace. As veterans, we know increased violence only fuels extremism. We have watched and in some cases been firsthand witnesses to how the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, et cetera, have had their countries and lives destroyed by U.S. and Russian military involvement. For the United States and Russia, the only course of action now is a commitment to genuine diplomacy with serious negotiations, without which conflict could easily spiral out of control to the point of further pushing the world towards nuclear war. Genuine diplomacy is a commitment to compromise and maintaining open lines of communication. We reject punitive sanctions 
that harshen the lives of people across the region. The sanctions that Biden is promised proposing are not tools of diplomacy, nor are they nonviolent methods of foreign policy. They do not target those responsible for war, but affect vulnerable civilian populations by limiting access to basic necessities. The U.S. has a responsibility to pursue genuine diplomacy, to push for an immediate ceasefire, to apply pressure on other nations to do the same. Veterans for Peace recognizes that this current crisis did not just happen in the last few days, but represents decades of policies, decisions, and government actions that have only contributed to the building of antagonisms and aggressions between countries. We must respond to this current crisis and continue our focus on addressing the causes of war by redirecting the military budget towards human needs, pushing for global abolition of nuclear weapons and eliminating the ability to corporations, ability of corporations to profit from war. And um, that's the Veterans for Peace statement. And I know Harvey and I, I know you, John, you've written on, on what's going on and you know the ramifications. And right now um, we're just on overload with all of the information coming in and you don't know what, what to think or where to go. I know I was on two Zooms yesterday, one from Code Pink. The other one was from um, About Face, uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War. Harvey did a lot of study and referred me to a, um, an interview with Abby Martin on Empire Files. And we've got clips from all of those things. Um, but I think it's important, no matter what we talk about, we have to understand that, to me, Putin is wrong <laughs> in invading. Putin is wrong in invading. Russia's wrong in invading. But it didn't start this week. It's been building for decades. So I need to take a breath. Yeah, just to say Putin's invaded, OK? I, I mean, well, I. I'm actually uh, what's happening and why it's happening. I, I, I'm I'm not completely uh, happy with that kind of with with beginning um, with beginning a statement like that with the condemnation of Russia. I'm a little bit unhappy with that. Yeah. Uh, the, with because the the context and the history in such a statement is put down below, and you know if people write newspaper articles. They put what they want to get across right up front. That's the message. That's a key message. I think that's a the wrong emphasis because part of part of going to war, a big part of it, you know, as Caitlin Johnson says, before you drop, before they drop the bombs, they drop the narrative, and the narrative here all along has been, uh, you know. Uh, the United States good, Russia evil. We've heard that since Putin came to power. Uh, I mean, and so I don't think, um, if, if you consider making a statement like that, I think you always have to consider, you know, it's the real world. Who hears it? Who you're speaking to? That statement is not going to be read by Vladimir Putin. That statement is not going to be read by the Russian people. That statement will be read by people in the peace movement, some of whom have become, I'm afraid, a little bit hawkish on this question of Russia over the years. 
and uh, will be read to a certain degree by the American people. Now, what bothers me about that is if you play into that narrative, if you strengthen it, then in fact, you're strengthening the drive to war. Is that moral? Is that a moral statement? You know, people say, well, I'm being moral. I'm against all war. I'm moral. You know, look at me, I'm moral. But what if you, if you play into the narrative, is that moral? And you know, uh, that, that problem presents itself again and again, because we do know we're, there's a confusing history about Ukraine. That's um, confusing. But just the other day, uh, the, the, I think when the very time that the United States was condemning uh, Russia for, for uh, entering Ukraine, the United States was bombing Somalia for a country that never attacked us. I would call that an act of war. I don't see people getting up saying, well, this is a terrible. So I think that we have to be very, very careful about how we do this. And, you know, in that context, I think we always have to remember, we don't live in just another country. We live in at the heart of an empire. And that, the, the words we speak get to the other the American people and have either either they retard the advance of empire or they slow it. And I think that may sound pragmatic, but that's the real world and morality plays out in the, in the real world. So sometimes I think a lot of the uh, statements here are, 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 are not, in the, in the progressive peace movement are not what they should be. And, and I'm actually struck, and I, I made a point of this online the other day, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the libertarians, like not all, the Ron Paul libertarians, they don't feel any need to condemn Russia. They're quite happy with condemning our role. They're happy with tending to our business. So I don't mean to quibble, but I think, you know, otherwise the VFP statement is great, but I, I think there's just something a little off up, up front. And, and I think, um, I think that, again, living in an empire that feels entitled to intervene and impose its will, its, its will anywhere in the world, that, that we always have to be first and foremost non-interventionists and 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 that that is a principle that serves us well because it's hard enough keeping track of what's going on in ukraine if you then say well let's keep track of what's going on in uh in, in the western pacific and let's keep track of what's going on in somalia and let's keep track of what's going on in venezuela and let's keep track of what's going on in nicaragua uh to find out who's the good guy for sure it's a hopeless task. The average citizen, the average person can't deal with that, especially when they will get the majority of their story through the US mass media, which is controlled by the US imperial machine. So non-interventionism is really first and foremost. We have to think of that all the time. That's the way I see it. And mm -hmm. I respect my uh, fellow, my colleagues in the in the peace movement who are libertarians because they seem to have a really tight hold on that. All right, so so they're not jumping on the um, blame 
blame Russia or Putin. Are they blaming anybody? Well, they're, they're, the, the principle there is that we should mind our business. Yeah. And that our business is our government. And our government has a role there very clearly. We want our government out of that role. And I would exactly. say not just not just out of providing little green men. Well, we, we call them advisors. When they're Russians, they're called little green men. Not just providing little green men to Ukraine, but weapons, um, uh, all, a material of all sorts. And as a matter of fact, the United States should be out of Europe, should be out of NATO. There should be no NATO. Those are all aggressive interventionist mechanisms. So boom, they should go and they'll save us a lot of money. That would be good. Now, Harvey showed me an interview between Abby Martin and Brian Becker, I think, Harvey, right? Yep. And, <laughs> and I want to play a little bit of that uh, because that he, he does a really good job as far as this backstory about NATO. And so here it is. Standing. It's a permanent military alliance. And where does, where does NATO go? It invades Afghanistan. Well, that's not part of the North Atlantic. It bombs Libya, also not part of the North Atlantic. Before that, in 1999, it carried out a savage war, which apparently all the Western media has forgot about. They keep describing what's going on in Ukraine as the biggest war since uh, the end of World War II in Europe. Well, NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia. Again, uh, similarly to what Russia is demanding about Eastern Ukraine, where the Russians are saying there's an abused minority people in the eastern part of Ukraine who are Russian speaking and we're going to defend them. The United States was using the Albanian, Mus uh, Albanian Muslim, speak Muslim population in Kosovo, a province of Serbia, as the pretext to go to war against Yugoslavia. So here you have war in Yugoslavia, war in Afghanistan, war against Libya. That's NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The thing that most alarmed Russia after the year 2000, I would say. In 1999, there was a wave of NATO expansion and some of the former Russian allies and Soviet republics were incorporated into NATO. That included uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and then in 2004, another wave of NATO expansion. But in 2008, NATO had a summit in Bucharest, in, in Bucharest and at that summit, the United States insisted and France and Germany, and this is extremely important, France and Germany dissented from the American position. The U.S. insisted that the U.S. was going to bring Ukraine and Georgia, two important former Soviet republics and principal allies of Russia, into NATO. And the Russians at that point, who had tolerated the first and second wave of NATO expansion in 1999 and 2004, the Russians said, no. We're not going to allow either Georgia or Ukraine to come into NATO because that provides or presents an existential threat. And remember that that Bucharest summit was April 2008. The, the Russians moved into Georgia in August 2008. Remember, there was a battle in South Ossetia. That's when the Russians moved in. It was quite clear that for Russia, this was a red line. They were not going to let Georgia come into NATO. Now, everything between 2008 and 2014 was kind of quiet. Nothing really happened. But in 2014, of course, Abby, as we, as you know, and we can talk about, 
the Maidan coup d'etat that destroyed a government, the Yanukovych government, corrupt but democratically elected government that was basically saying we're between East and West, let's be neutral, we are neutral, we want to have good relations with the EU, but we want to have good relations with Russia, we don't want to take sides, and we don't want NATO membership. That government was overthrown by a Nazi-led, and I mean it literally Nazi and neo-Nazi-led coup d'etat, which John McCain and Victoria Nuland, Republicans and Democrats, saluted as a great day for Ukrainian democracy. That's when everything shifts, because from then on, Russia then knows that Ukraine will be eventually admitted into NATO. So there's a little bit of the backstory from uh, Brian Becker in this interview <clears throat> with Abby Martin. And, you know, I had, I don't even know if I knew that there was this meeting in Bucharest in 2008. And there's France and Germany saying, no, no, Ukraine and the United States who had settled the deal with Gorbachev as far as we're never going to expand NATO. And there the United States is undercutting, undercutting Russia. I always like to remind people that uh, there's, a, there's a long history of, 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 the, of the United States in doing this. That is, um, up to World War II, the United States was a, an aggressive, I would say very aggressive imperial power in, in Latin America, in the Pacific, elsewhere, Africa. Um, but on the eve of World War II, okay. so 1941, they said, look, look at what's going to happen. Um, the uh, the Japanese and the uh, and the uh, and the uh, Germans are on their way to losing this war. We will enter the war, and and they understood quite clearly. Europe will be wrecked. East Asia will be wrecked. There will be only us as the major industrial power left over. They said this then will be the American century. We will control the world. They knew this quite clearly, and it was then that Henry Luce wrote the same thing, the American century. And after World War II, a Kennan said the same thing. We're 6% we're of their 4% of the world's population. We, we control 90% of the resources. We have to do whatever is necessary to keep that. And let's not be, uh, let's not be queasy about it. I forgot the expression he used, but he said, you know, we can't be altruists at this moment. This is a tough job and we're gonna do it. And then we go all the way up to Wolfowitz, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, same thing over again. We will prevent any power from even aspiring to be a regionally dominant power, to uh, be completely sovereign, that not does not allow U.S. troops to occupy it. <clears throat> Russia and China fit, fill that bill, especially China. And so now Russia and China are targeted. We say that. We, we don't make any bones about it. And so I think we also have to see Everything that happened since, since the, the, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in that light, that's what's going on here. This is a U.S. policy, moral, immoral, you call it what you want. I find it highly immoral, but that's what's going on. And so um, I think we also have to fit in what's going on in Ukraine into that picture. I think what the United States sees is that what happened in World War II worked out well for the United States. So what could be better than to have a regional war in Europe, pitting the Europeans against Russia? 
with a regional war in, in East Asia, pitting China against the, the alliance we put together there, those people can go and fight one another. That's ideal, just like Ukraine is fighting Russia, first step. And what's going to happen in the end? Like World War II, we'll be at the top of the heap. That's what's going on, I think. And I, I think we have to fit Ukraine into that framework. I'm not saying that it's specifically necessarily planned that way, that somebody has sit, sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. Although uh, Victoria Newland and those people, I put nothing past them. But this is the way we're developing events. So that's part of the context, too, the imperium of the world. We have to really, I'm repeating myself here a bit, but we have to keep that in mind all the time because that's the reality. So what you're saying has sort of been my gut interpretation of things, how they've gone, is uh, once, once uh, the invasion started, uh, <clears throat> Blinken and company got exactly what they wanted. <laughs> they did Putin, did Putin make a, a grand historical error here by, by moving first? Or did he feel that he was so threatened that there was, he had no choice? I don't know. Was he forced into this? Or well, did he they, make they were a quite foolish upfront, move? They were quite upfront about what they considered their uh, bottom line for security assurances, security guarantees. And it certainly included uh, no NATO membership for Ukraine, but it also included uh, the U.S. rejoining the nuclear, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, uh, and included uh, <clears throat> uh, removing missile uh, launching capacity in these bordered bordering countries, uh, a number of other things. I think they even talked about the ABM Treaty, which you know was apparently a, uh, an important uh, safeguard when it was there, but. You know, everything about the U.S. Uh, nuclear deployments and, and even in terms of the weapons they're developing uh, don't make any sense except if you're looking for a first strike capability. And I guess that's my real darkest moments is are we trying to work up a pretext for a first strike? You know, the fact that uh, diplomacy, as much as they talked about it, and there was never any diplomacy that actually took place. And only, you know, there was very little coverage in U.S. media about what Russia really was asking for, uh, other than the fact that the U.S. just pretty much summarily rejected everything and said it was all non-starters and a, a lot of hogwash about sovereign nations, which they seem to be able to ignore when it comes to their own foreign policy. So, uh, you know, it was clear that uh, they, they kind of knew that Russia was drawing a line here. They knew that from what they did in Georgia. Uh, they knew that from what they did in Crimea once uh, the coup took place and there was a pro-Western government. And uh, I think they knew that if, if uh, the U.S. hardliners had their way, Russia would be forced to uh, take a military action. So I think, I think this is what they wanted. Well, I, I agree with that. And, and I think, but I think that I'm not sure that the, in the nuclear, uh, 
the idea that the United States might want to use nuclear weapons right off the bat anyway, I don't think is correct because again, in Europe, the United States has two adversaries, Russia, because it's sovereign and powerful militarily, and actually economically powerful in PPP GDP terms. They make fun of Russia's economy. But in PPP GDP terms, Russia's economy is roughly the size of Germany's. And nobody belittles Germany's economy. They're five and six in the world, I think it's that. Before sanctions, Russia was slightly ahead. Russia slightly down. But so that's not a tiny economy. So the United States has two adversaries, Russia and Germany. You know, Trump was fond of slapping tariffs on Germany too. And we still have some, I believe. Um, uh, we have two adversaries there. And I think the, the, the United States doesn't mind if they go at one another at all. Uh, that is a solution to a, a, a problem that we have, just like uh, we have Japan and uh, China on the other end of the world. It's fine if they go after one another. That helps us. But, you know, I'd like to sort of take another turn here because something, Jim, you mentioned right at the beginning that, that um, you know, Putin now put his nuclear weapons on high alert. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure, I don't know what about our nuclear weapons, but I'm sure with that, we're on high alert too. I haven't heard anything about that, but I can't imagine. And so I think for, for veterans for peace, and, and for especially the, the anti, the no nuke group, this is a big deal. Because not only are they, when that, not only are, are they on the highest alert, but the Russian and nuclear and, and American nuclear weapons are on hair trigger alert, mm -hmm. hair trigger alert, launch on warning. And one of Putin's concerns, he says, look, if those if nuclear weapons are put into uh, into Ukraine or any place to our, close to our borders, I have five minutes five minutes to decide whether to push the button or not if I get a warning. And so we are we are now have just entered uh, accidental Armageddon territory. That's where we are. Yep. And 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 you know I hope maybe when things quiet down that we can do the anti-nuclear group can do one very important thing, which I think might be within our reach, and that is to get rid, to start a campaign to get rid of hair trigger alert launch on warning. Uh, China has that, they separate, it isn't just words or a policy, the warheads are over there, separated, you can separate them by a day or a week's time. The, the launch uh, devices are over here. So there's no hair trigger alert. That's not the panacea, that's not the end of the mm -hmm. nuclear problem, but it certainly gives us breathing space and, you know, if we really think about it, and I, I, I did want to get this in, because there's this wonderful book by, called The Button. I don't know if you can see this. It's hard to hold this up when I have that background, The Button, yep. by uh, Perry and Will, Bill Perry, who's the former Secretary of Defense, and Tom Colina of Plowshares. And Perry just has a very, very nice sentence in there. He says, you know, if, if, if I'm the president, 
and I get a warning that there's an incoming attack. He says, what can I do? He says, well, he says, what if I, what if it's a, what if it's a, a false alarm? He says, then definitely I shouldn't press the button. That would be a mistake. What if it's not a false alarm? What if there are incoming missiles? Well, then we have a nuclear war. We're going to have nuclear winter. So there's no sense pushing the button. This is a button that's useless. This is a button that will only cause a nuclear war. We ought to get that button out of commission so that it can't be, so somebody can't fall on it or touch it accidentally or some crazy thing that will cause the end of everything. So we can't even go forward to, to nuclear abolition. I hope we can, can take that up and I hope I hope other groups begin to uh, mm -hmm. be uh, back from the brink does that. VFP has it in our mission statement on, on no nukes, but others seems to be the orphan of the anti-nuclear movement. Maybe this will get people thinking about hair trigger alert, launch and warning. It's a verifiable thing that can be done. China's showing the way. So in any event, I, that's a side issue, but it's really not a side issue. Mm -hmm. For us, it's very important in the end. It's something when this crisis quiets down. When we live it through does. it. Yeah, when, when we, we get through, through it. it. You know, we, we live through it. on a couple of weeks, few weeks ago, and he was talking about, that was before this really came to, to a real head, but how uh, our, our stationing of uh, nuclear capable missile launchers in Romania, in Poland, you know, this is analogous really to uh, the missiles in Cuba. And uh, look how we responded to that. And my big concern is, you know, we came, you know, so close to everything ending that October of 1962. And the key was JFK and Khrushchev kept talking. Just the other day, Biden said he is no longer talking to Putin. That is really scary. And, you know, that is so, so important, though. And no, have you seen anything, anyone editorially mm -hmm. or anywhere else say President Putin, I mean, yeah. President Biden, do your job and get on the phone. Yeah. You cannot just stonewall. Well, the, the, I, I, what I've seen, and I don't know where it stands now, is that, uh, you know, when Zelensky started talking about uh, negotiating with Russia, which is another way out of this whole thing, yeah. um, this fellow, Ned Price, who's a spokesman for the State Department, yeah. said, we oppose that. That would be, Zelensky will be uh, negotiating with a gun to his head. Well, okay, the United States... In the real world is against negotiations. What's, what's going on there? I mean, is 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 Zelensky hiding hiding in his bunker from uh, from Russia or from the United States because he wants to try to negotiate? I don't know, or maybe from the Nazis who don't want to see any negotiation either. Yeah, but it's a very what happened to the sovereignty of uh, Ukraine <laughs> if uh, the U.S. can. Uh tell them they can't negotiate with their country absolutely absolutely, absolutely. And, and bringing a going back to john kennedy um you know biden is clearly no jfk um, 
<laughs> so, but the thing is, it doesn't seem to be, at least John Kennedy had Bobby and there was a couple other folks that didn't want, didn't, wanted to avoid nuclear exchange no matter what. And I just don't see anybody of that talent level that I can have confidence in with regard to this administration. I think that's one of the most dangerous aspects that we are facing right now is just the incompetence within the, um, the foreign policy sector of this particular administration. I think not just the incompetence, but the fact that the foreign policy now is nothing but hardliners, including Congress. You, you know, even 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 going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the the most detailed the, the most detailed analysis that, that that I've read with all the documents and so on is that in the room when when the when Kennedy and his advisors Dean Rusk and McNamara and and Bobby they were all in the room um, up to midweek of that crisis. Um, there are only two options before that group. One was to bomb Cuba, and the other was to bomb and invade Cuba. And what happened, and this is a, you know, I, I tribute to the man, apparently the uh, Adlai Stevenson was then UN ambassador. He came back, he had lunch with Kennedy, and he said, look, there's another way out of this. You don't have to attack Cuba. He said, you can make a deal. And then the Khrushchev letter came and the Kennedy letters. But up to that point, if you can imagine the whole national leadership, except this one man who mm -hmm. happened to come on the scene mm -hmm. was for, for war. So God knows what we have down there now, because you're right. That crowd was at least, at least seemed to be somewhat in, in touch with reality. This crowd in Washington, uh, you know, uh, Blinken and uh, the people around him, I, I think they seem very arrogant and very, I think they're really living in the past. It's, and so that's, to me, that's very disturbing. Yeah. Um, I have a clip where Brian Becker um, warns <coughs> what might be happening. But if the if Ukraine's resistance were to continue, and this isn't a quick rollover by the Russian military, uh, this thing could escalate very rapidly into a regional or global conflict. I mean, we're we're when we talk about this is a new day in global politics. This is a new day that could lead to a kind of crisis that the world and certainly Europe hasn't seen since the late 1930s. People should not minimize the absolute danger. That's why I think it's so, for Americans especially, we have to say to our government or the government that speaks in our name, your reckless, provocative, aggressive actions have brought the world possibly to the brink of World War III, which doesn't mean you have to then endorse every military move or political statement of the country that the United States or NATO are in conflict with. You don't have to do that. We can retain an objective faculty, but if if the if the goal of the of the Russian military is to carry out regime change, which it seems like that's what the goal is, 
The goal is to have in power in Kiev a government that's committed to Russia or to not entering NATO. That means this is a long-term operation that we're just at the beginning of. The only way that could conceivably end would be as if there's an emergency, a, a summit whereby the United States and NATO powers, but it's really the United States. NATO, NATO is not really, a, it's the Americans. If the United States sat down with the Russians and said, look, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, you leave right now, uh, we're going to, you know, devolve authority to different regions in Ukraine. We're going to absolutely go along with your idea that that NATO, Ukraine will, will not be moved into a NATO sphere of influence. It doesn't need formal membership. NATO was becoming a de facto member. Ukraine was Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO without formal membership. But the U.S. could stop right now and say, "Let's do that." Is there a will, a desire? or the courage within the US government to say under the circumstances of a Russian military offensive in Ukraine that they wanna sit down and make concessions to Russia? I don't think so. I don't see Biden or any of these hardliners from either party. And, and it's not just the whole, the whole American political scene is hardliner. Uh, I don't see them doing it. That's why this is such a dangerous moment. We don't know how it ends. We don't know how this ends, but we do know that the Russians have decided that they're done negotiating. That's what makes this, and again, I just want to emphasize for people, don't be glib about this. Take a serious look at what's happened. The Putin government in Russia has decided that the era of appeasement with the West has ended, and they're going to use military force to recreate a buffer zone for what they think is necessary for Russian security. You know, one of the things I, I worry about is um, if this is protracted and if Putin then feels that he's backed into a corner, then what will his, what will his stance be? Since he is a strong man, uh, I don't see him, I don't see him backing down. That's where that's where I worry about the nuclear exchange. And the question is, uh, you know, what if? I mean, you keep, nobody really knows what's going on right now inside Ukraine. Mm -mm. I mean, the reports are all over the place. But if, as some reports suggest, the Russian uh, troops aren't all they're cracked up to be, and and uh, they're not as successful as Putin had assumed they would be. And, and the tide turns and on, you know, on a conventional warfare, he's, he's losing ground. What's his next option? Yeah. Well, I, I would disagree with, with uh, Brian on, on, on one thing there. And, and that is he felt that the, uh, the, uh, the Russians were sort of winning the information war. And uh, I would disagree because, um, in the last elections in Germany, uh, the, the Green Party entered the coalition government. The Green Party is by far the most hawkish element in Germany and is very anti-Russia, very humanitarian imperialist, and they control the foreign ministry. 
And uh, as soon as, and, and uh, you know, Nord Stream 2 hasn't been opened after years and years and years and years of trying. And Biden told, uh, uh, I thought in a humiliating uh, moment there, he, Biden said to the, the Chancellor of Germany, he said, I, we don't care what you say about Nord Stream 2, it's gonna stay closed. And so I, frankly, I, my opinion is that at this point, Russia has for the moment given up on Europe. It's gonna, it's gonna do what it can to, to protect itself from, the, from, uh, from NATO joining, uh, from, from Ukraine joining NATO. I think it's going to turn rather decisively to the East. I mean, it's been going more and more and more that way. I think Putin has decided, there's, I've been trying, you know, since 2007, that's the first time I heard Putin make all these, these complaints at the conference in Munich, a famous speech. It's well worth listening to. He was saying the same things in 2007. He mm -hmm. said the same, he, 2008, 2014, 2015, and now, you know, last December, he said, this is our peace offering. This is our peace treaty. This is, this is what we need to feel secure. It's been no all the time. And it's been no through all kinds of administrations. I think, I think this is a turn, we'll see, but it could be a very final historic turn for at least this epic away from Europe. Um, not wanting to close down ties with Europe, but saying, we're not gonna rely on you being on our side, even when it's to your benefit because you are not capable of pulling away from the United States. That's, that's a very possible outcome. Now, as far that, as possible outcomes though, I wanna get into a couple of positives if we can. Could this, if things go, if things don't go nuclear, but go badly, could this do something to, have people really look at NATO and say, yeah, this was a bad move. We should have disbanded NATO when we disbanded the Warsaw Pact. Mm -hmm. And so we don't really need NATO. Or, or do you see this on the, on the flip side? Oh, all it's gonna do is, is, is increase everybody's military budget. And all of a sudden NATO will be flying high. Well, I, my opinion is that in order to stop this, when I, you know, the, the regional war in Europe, the regional conflict, the regional, uh, well, let's call it conflict between Europe and Russia, the only, the only force, I don't think that's going to stop, be stopped in the United States. Unfortunately, I, I, maybe we can do something to reverse it, but I think the American people are too far gone. And it's up to the regional players there to say, look, we don't want war all over Europe again, because Zelensky has said, you know, this is not going to be a war in Ukraine. He says, this will be a war in Europe. Mm -hmm. And actually, Duterte said the same thing in the Pacific. He says, when, when elephants uh, do battle, it's the grass that gets stomped on. He was talking about himself. He's the grass. Taiwan's the grass. South Korea is the grass. Japan is the grass. In this case, because of and, and actually, because the, the 
wars are to be fought or the conflicts to work themselves out in these two regions away from us. They're all the grass. We're just so it's the people of the region. The United States can't do this by itself. If the so-called allies say this is not we're not getting anything out of this. Um, we're not going to do this. We're not going to go this way. Then maybe something better would come out. But that will be a tough call. I think a, a very tough thing to do. Well, the EU today joined the rest of them in sending arms, which I didn't even think the EU had arms per se. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> and arms, but no brains. <laughs> arms with no brains and that's you know uh, well uh as far as what we do in this country i know one of the zooms i listened to was code pink and um i do have a, a clip from medea benjamin um that talked about what's going on and we'll listen to a little bit of that we are in a situation where our uh, number one concern is for the civilians of Ukraine who are facing the violence, facing tremendous displacement, tremendous suffering. Uh, in fact, we are waiting for one of our speakers to join us from Ukraine, who is in a very uh, terrible situation herself. Um, we're also uh, facing a situation where uh, we are calling for at least Code Pink because um, we're going to have different opinions on this gathering, which is fine. Uh, we are calling for an immediate ceasefire withdrawal of troops from uh, Ukraine and a, an immediate search for negotiations, a way to stop this. Uh, and we are worried that our own governments, like in the U.S., are instead... <laughs> Um, fanning the flames by sending more troops into the region, sending more weapons into the region, and calling for sanctions that will uh, not only harm the ordinary citizens of Russia, but um, people all over the region, including all of Europe and, and perhaps globally. So we are in a need for a global peace community, which we are uh, why we have called this. Uh, we need the ideas of the speakers. Uh, we need the uh, energy and commitment of people around the world to say how we can how can we come together. We know already we are losing uh, uh, people inside Ukraine. Uh, we are losing the uh, efforts that we have had towards uh, stopping the expansion of NATO uh, and stopping the uh, expansion of militarism. And so uh, it is up to us, the peace people around the world, to find a way to insert. And so what Code Pink is actually calling for, and a number of other organizations, is a, uh, a, a demonstration or demonstrations on March 6th um, to have the people get out. Uh, and, you know, this, this Zoom was very good, but it had a bunch of older people and they all did, while condemning the uh, invasion, they were quick to point out that we understand how Putin got here because of NATO, because of the US, because of pressure. Um, then it was interesting that I, I, I listened to 
another Zoom with the post 9-11 vets uh, from About Face. They were quick to call on governments and the US and the Russians and the Belarusians to stop, but they didn't mention getting out in the street. And I even put in the chat, Code Pink is wanting to do something on March 6th. So that difference of approach was kind of curious to me. And I was just wondering, maybe they've kind of looked at the situation and looked at what us septuagenarians have done by getting out on the street with our banners and our posters and our signs and having governments do what they damn well please anyway. I, I don't know. I, I've gotten to the point where I don't think marches do much <laughs> personally. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. But you know, if, if, if a huge groundswell of opposition is gonna have any impact, it would have to be in Russia. And I actually did see, uh, I think it might've been on Twitter, uh, video from St. Petersburg, an enormous crowd uh, calling for peace. And, uh, but the, uh, <clears throat> the interesting thing about it was the, the uh, <clears throat> uh, little copy that went with it said, you know, thousands uh, demonstrating, demanding peace in St. Petersburg. I mean, if you can demonstrate to Putin that he does not have the support of the people, He's going to have to just politically factor that in. Well, um, to 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 to, to uh, I th I think I think street demonstrations are worthwhile. Um, I mean, I wouldn't. They certainly don't hurt. They're they're worthwhile. Right. But but in terms in terms of this crisis, in terms of this particular problem at this time, we in fact have the most popular talk show on television calling for us to get out of Ukraine. That's Tucker Carlson. Now, I may disagree with Tucker Carlson on, every, on, on everything else, but I do agree with him on this. And who's on with him agreeing and talking? But Tulsi Gabbard. And I, nobody in the progressive movement is going to go near them with a 10-foot pole. Why? Exactly. Because... They're not for Medicare for all. Well, I've spent a lot of my life being for Medicare for all, all right? A huge chunk of it working on it. I don't care whether they're not for Medicare for all. I don't care whether they're, this is, this is not theology, this is politics. And we have allies there who will help us in this. Don't count on Tucker Carlson when it comes to China because he'll be waving the, uh, the American flag. But here, why not? Why shouldn't we, why shouldn't we, and as a matter of fact, some of this in Congress may be halted because uh, some Republicans don't like the idea of spending the money. Fine with me. Fine with me. And the Less money on inter military industrial complex. I don't care whether you're just a Scrooge or whether you're an idealist. As long as you don't want to spend it. Yeah. That's fine with me. And Democrats are polling the Democratic in Democrats in Congress are polling two to one over the Republicans and and wanting to uh, get militarily involved in Ukraine. Yeah, well, the, and the other night, actually, on PBS News, I was astonished. They showed a poll. I forget where it comes from, but they had it up there on the screen that that more more Republicans than Democrats. This is rank and file Republicans 
are against U.S. and sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. Yeah. More Republicans. Yeah. You know, I think we may be overlooking allies because the same people who are for socialism can very well, who are against socialism, can also be very well, be very much against imperialism. Those, thought, are different, those are different battles. I thought uh, the libertarian statement that was, uh, I don't know if that was you that sent that. You said there were two statements, the yes. libertarian yes. and then the earlier one. Yeah. I thought your statement was strong. Mm. Well, they said, they said, you know, they said basically, um, let's mind our own business. And they said, yeah, by the way, non intervention was there. And they also laid out all the kinds of, uh, in, in uh, to a limited degree, of, this is Dan McAdams, uh, th that we're doing around the world at the same, in, 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 uh, virtually at the same time. I mean, when, when Biden gets up there and says, we uh, stand for sovereignty and we don't like invasions of independent countries. I mean, what about Afghanistan? What about Iraq? What about what? What is the man talking about? And the press just sits there and nods. Mm -hmm. And and at least at least Tucker and uh, and, and Tulsi call him out on it. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. fine with me. That's that's the start of something. So yeah. frankly, I like that. Mm -hmm. But what worries me is we work so hard on that on our nuclear posture review. And because of this mess, because of this mess, all we're going to see is an increase in spending on the military, an increase in spending on the nuclear, and our our, our nuclear posture view, which is so good, which yes, is so very good, so good, is going to get lost in this shuffle of um, uh, military, industrial, congressional, corporate complex. Well, you know that you know what they're going to do no matter what, but. I yeah. think that a case can be made that our nuclear posture is a big part of the problem for Russia's uh, being willing to <laughs> take military action to feel mm -hmm. these threats to their security. There again, there again, if we were to choose uh, launch on warning as our lead and, and try to do something with that, we're not just for TPNW, we're for all these intermediate steps. We're not just utopians. We want steps to protect us and to get there. So we may have an opening. We may have a real contribution to make because we are one of the, VFP is one of the few anti-nuke organizations that does that. We, right. we, we did that consciously. And so that's really very good. And we'll just see. So we just don't know what the heck is going to happen between now and next Sunday or now and th this Thursday. And we just I think the biggest thing, whenever we hear people clamoring about Russia, 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 we do really have to make the point that we can only poke the hornet's nest so long until the hornets start coming out and start coming, you know, and starting defending their own, their, their nest. Well, I, I never expected any of this. I never expected them to attack. I thought they were just posturing with all the troops on the border. I really never. And even when they first went into uh, those two provinces to the east, I thought, okay, they're going to go to the border, going to stop and say, okay, we're done. Now. I thought that too. I thought that too. And I, so the, the situation for the Russians, 
the Russian leadership sees the situation is much more dire than 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 I had thought. I I yeah. I think I think they this is their take it or leave it stance. They may even get Zelensky to make a, a, a you know make an agreement of neutrality, and then I think once that's done, I think Russia's done with the West. I think that's I hope that's it. Say we end with a song. I was thinking Eva Destruction or Bob Dylan's God, God's on our side. Um, so, There's a know, Tom Lehrer song, isn't there? <laughs> what, what's the Tom Lehrer song? We'll all go together all go, when we go. We'll all go together when we go. <laughs> yeah, we'll all go together when we go. That's it. So let's leave it there. And thanks to John Walsh for coming on and contributing so much that is not well known about this situation. So there's nothing to say except let's have a good week. Let's try to have a good week and let's have peace. And with that, here's Tom Lehrer. I always like to end on a positive note. So here is a rousing, uplifting song, which is guaranteed to cheer you up. When you attend a funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do. But don't you worry, no more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too. There'll be nobody left behind to grieve, and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we go. We will all go together when we go all suffused with an incandescent glow. No one will have the endurance to collect on his insurance. Lloyds of London will be loaded when they go. We will all fry together when we fry. We'll be French fried potatoes by and by. There will be no more misery when the world is our rotisserie. Yes, we all will fry together when we fry. We will all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake with complete participation in that grand incineration. Nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak. We will all char together when we char. And let there be no moaning of the bar. Just sing out a tedium when you see that ICBM, and the party will be come as you are. We will all burn together when we burn. There'll be no need to stand and wait your turn. When it's time for the fallout and St. Peter calls us all out, we'll just drop our agendas and adjourn. We will all go together when we go, every hot and tot and every Eskimo. When the air becomes uranius, we will all go simultaneous. 
Yes, we all will go together when we all go together. Yes, we all will go together when we go. Thank you.